Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT. Because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises. From the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer. Which is why no matter what line of work you're in, They've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Did you read with Tim Montgomery? Is Ed Miliband's leadership in trouble? Or actually, in his confrontation with the trade unions, is he about to rescue his leadership and prove he is the strong leader that the nation needs? It looks as if you can't be a Labour MP unless you're deep in with the unions, someone's girlfriend or the son or daughter of someone in shadow cabinet. And more generally, are centre-left parties right across Europe in trouble as voters give up on the political process and big government what the left have to do is start having a conversation. We have no idea really how they feel, how what their ideas are. My name is Tim Montgomery, editor of the Times' Opinion Pages, and this week I'm joined by Phil Collins, Gabby Hinsleth and Anne Treneman to discuss some of the things that have been appearing in the Times and their reactions to them. All of the articles we'll be discussing can be read on our Comment Central blog, which you can find at thetimes.co.uk slash commentcentral, and that's available to all Times subscribers. Phil, can I start with you? This seems to me to be a very big moment for Ed Miliband. Very early in his leadership, he seemed to shy away from a confrontation with the unions that in large part installed him as leader. Now we seem to be moving to a place where he's ready to take some of them on. I remember doing an interview within minutes of Ed Miliband being uh, announced as leader of the Labour Party in which I said the test for him will be the extent to which he eludes the victory he's just won. And for a long time, I thought that it would be a victory from which he never recovered, like George Dangerfield said of the Liberals in 1906. And it seems to me that the Miliband team, a bit like the Brown team, is defined by the fact that they they end up in the position that the Blair team would have got to only very, very late. And they just creep there, grudgingly under duress. I think this is happening to Ed Miliband on the union question now. It was always coming at him the speech that he is making on on the union link. He was always going to have to be made. And for a long time, he resisted that inevitable fact. But here it is. 
the good thing for Ed is that when those moments arrive, he does tend to react and do the right thing. So if I'm speaking before I've seen the speech, but if it's as it's trailed, I'll welcome it. There's a lot in it I think will be really good and I'll be pleased by it. I just feel deeply exasperated it takes him so long to get there. Um, The caution, the the temperamental caution that infuses everything that that team does means that they wait and wait and wait until the very last moment before they do what was always inevitable. And the big question will be whether it's too late. Mm -hmm. So whether or not this is a big moment... Uh, an analogy with Clause 4 with Blair, I wonder, because I think there's a sort of grudging element to it, whereas with Blair, it was a deliberate provocation. There was no need for it. He did did it because he wanted to. He did it right from the beginning. And Anne Treneman, what do you think people out there are going to think about Ed Miliband making this speech in, in, the, in, in the timing that he's chosen because it looks like he's reacting to well, he all the reacting. fallout of Falkirk. It's not as he though is reacting. he's, he's I mean, leading his, his party. I mean, I've thought, I was completely completely fed up with him last week because PMQs, um, it was very obvious to everyone that Falkirk is a complete mess and a disaster for him because whether he is controlled or not by the unions, there's a perception out there that he is. And if you've got a perception in politics, that you might, it might as, it's just as good as having a reality, frankly. I mean, so you've got to change that. And he should have been completely on top of that. Tom Watson should not have been in place at PMQs last Wednesday. He should have had an answer, not defending. Um, I mean, in, you know, kind of briefing notes that were <laughs> left in the loo uh, at the Commons, as only can happen in the Commons. Lot, everything is left in... Briefing notes that the best ever read. No <laughs> one's ever focused on... <laughs> everything is left in the loo at the Commons. Um, you know, sort of showed him defending Tom Watson, saying, you know, I'd rather have Tom Watson than Andy Colson. I mean, honestly, a ridiculous thing to say. And it just doesn't... It didn't work. I really think that that was, you know, the problem is when, when Cameron says weak, weak, weak. I mean, I am not on anyone's team particularly. You know, I'm not Labour. I'm not Tory. And even I sort of think, well, why is Ed Miliband so risk adverse that he is afraid to just be his own man? Gabby Hinsett, as we begin this chapter and a new chapter with mm. Ed Miliband taking on the unions, how bloody do you think it's going to be? How much is this going to drag on for a long time when we see a Labour movement fighting each each other? I think or it, actually, is, yeah. is Ed Miliband going to get to a victory quite quickly? Do you I think, think it can't help but be messy. There's no time frame put on it. We have no idea how long any of this is going to take. It can't. I mean, it's too late. Most seats have been, most winnable seats have been selected now or very close to being selected for the next election. So it's not going to affect particularly, you know, this chunk of selections for this election. So we're talking what about maybe selections five years time. And I think there is there's nothing wrong necessarily with having a big knockdown drawn out fight. Blair's clause four fight was messy and vicious and very, you know, nearly lost in some ways. But you've got to be fighting for something that the public sees a point in fighting for. And I'm just not sure at this stage in the electoral cycle, people's main question is whether the union link. I mean, it's terribly interesting if you're in politics, but it's not terribly interesting if you're out of politics. And I think the thing most people will have insofar as most normal people have followed this particular debacle at all, what they've followed is a selection process that looks like, I mean, if you work for a normal company, if you hired or fired people in the way that political parties choose their candidates, you would be up before a tribunal every day of the week. It looks as if you can't be a Labour MP unless you're deep in with the unions, someone's girlfriend or the son or daughter of someone in shadow cabinet. And that to people does look wrong because it looks as if the sort of ordinary people you might want to see in politics who just happen to be very good at their jobs and quite keen on changing the world wouldn't 
stand a chance. And Ed is absolutely right to take on that, those problems with the selection process, but to turn it into a much broader battle. Is now the time? Two years? I mean, Linton Crosby has basically started the general election campaign, as far as I can see this week. There's a lot of commentary this morning that says this is a very big moment. And I wonder whether it is. I wonder whether actually the grudging and, and reactive nature of it makes it look like Ed Miliband's the sort of guy who you can get to do things if you if you force him to. That's the whole problem with Ed. Many, everything is an alleged big moment. And then he goes and does it and you think, oh, dear. You know, because there's no sort of heart in it. And there's been maybe two subjects. Levison was one. And I think, you know, for instance, if the government were going to start to arm the rebels in Syria, he totally will fight that. And mm-hmm. when he actually fights something with his heart, it works. But most you, of the, he, he creeps a, until he leaps, doesn't he, Ed? Yeah. That's the thing. I mean, he, he's very <laughs> cautious for a while. He well, he's very <laughs> cautious for a while. And then suddenly he takes a massive risk. <laughs> and, it's like, and then suddenly we go back to kind of but creeping around a, again. This yeah, is a different one. This is a different one because previously his villains have always fallen to the right. So if you're a Labour leader, to come into uh, your job and to have successively bankers and Rupert Murdoch as the two villains that you can fight is manna from heaven. All of a sudden, he's got a different set of villains immediately to his left who he didn't want to fight left-wing villains at all. That's not the leadership he thought he'd be uh, producing. And that will be his predicament, is when Ed has to do things he doesn't want to do, how will he define himself then? It's coming again in a much less dramatic way with public service reform, where he's got nothing to say, but one day he'll be making a speech like this and he'll be annoying everybody to his left who never thought it would come. And you, you watch him in Prime Minister's Questions time week in, week out. Do you see in here the topics that he chooses, the performance he delivers? Do you see someone that's improving? Because if you look at the public opinion polls, people's view of him, which was low right at the beginning of the time he was elected, has stayed absolutely still rock bottom. Only 10% of the population think he's strong, 50% think he's weak. Do you see an unfairness in that? Do you think he's actually getting better at the job? When he started out, he had a very wobbly sort of few months. Then he actually got quite good. And he's been in a trough now for months. And he should have, you know, the last sort of few weeks, he should have won one of them. He hasn't won any of them. He sometimes wins the argument, but he never, he just, he's very wooden. He's very formulaic. He takes very few risks. He's not very funny. He is actually in real life kind of funny. But you never see that. You don't see the relaxed, and he never really. You just he just doesn't sort of have it. He doesn't. He knows he doesn't have charisma, but he's not even trying to kind of inject a little bit. Because you've written, Gabby. Actually, the Tories are cock a hoop at the moment at what they see as Labour's weaknesses. But yeah. you, just to put this in a broader perspective, you're you're not so pessimistic about Labour's prospects. Well, I, f- I find this idea of weakness odd because I don't think Ed is in an obvious sense weak. Weak people don't take on vested interests, even belatedly and grudgingly. They don't take on powerful interests. They don't do things that cost them vast amounts of money, potentially. They don't stand up to people who have the power to do them harm. And actually, if you look about the way David Cameron's managed his party, you know, weakness is caving in to your party when it wants to go in a direction and you don't, but you end up trailing along behind them. Like on you know, Europe, as, as on Europe, as on gay marriage, you know, David Cameron has been dragged into doing things that he doesn't want to do. But I don't see Ed as having been dragged along in that way. But the, I think the weakness comes from a more general perception. I think it's more about his mannerism. There's something, there's quite something quite gentle about him. He's not particularly personally forceful. He's not someone who, when they 
walk into a room, every head turns, you know. And I think that's what people are, are picking I think up on. He can be. He can be. I've I think seen there's him. Something bigger than that, though, as well. I think all of that's true. I agree. Also, weak doesn't quite capture oh, what it is. Right. But I think there's something bigger, which is that I think that there's a gap between what Ed would really like to do, the nation he'd really like to live in, which is a more left of centre nation than the one he actually lives in. And the gap between that desire and that awareness of where he actually lives means he gets paralysed. So when he comes to PMQs, the way you can replace an absence of charisma is with content, with genuine solid argument. He doesn't have that yet either. And if he doesn't have that, he's going to be beaten week after week. Before we move on to our next topic, just a final question to you, Anne. The union's sort of kickback at some of what Ed Miliband has been saying is that actually what they're about is trying to put more work. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Can class candidates into Parliament, and it seems a bit of a diversion, but do you sense that there is a problem of a lack of representation that it is important for the union movement to address? Well, I don't think the union movement is responsible for getting working, quote unquote, working class people in. Um, they only want, a, they basically want their mouthpieces in there who will ask the questions that they tell people to ask. I think we definitely need as broad, as much, you know, this broad spectrum of people in there. You've got to have working class people in there, like you have, you know, quite a lot of toffs in there as well. It's got to be there. We need that. I just totally think that the idea that they are, they are personally responsible for that is hilarious. So just before we continue our conversation, Peter Kellner of YouGov recently conducted polling right across Europe about voters' attitudes to the centre-left. This is what he found in that polling. Since the Second World War, the left has based its electoral appeal across Western Europe on two propositions. Firstly, uh, that what people wanted was... Uh, a state that gave them up protection, protection against poverty, ill health, uh, provided children with uh, education, provided old people with a decent uh, living in retirement. 
And secondly, a belief that the states was actually capable of doing these things. And what our YouGov research across four countries, Britain, Sweden, France and Germany, is that people have lost faith in the states and have lost faith to a large extent in the ability of the centre-left parties, the Labour Party in Britain, Social Democrats or Socialists elsewhere, to deliver these benefits. So if the left weren't depressed, Gabby, from some of the poll ratings that Ed Miliband is suffering from, those words, those findings that Peter Kellner just talked about seem to me to be more significant in a way. They seem to suggest that voters in major European countries, at least, perhaps further afield, no longer think that government is affordable or effective and that centre-left parties like the Labour Party aren't on their side. That, that seems a more profound challenge for big government parties. There are two things going on at the moment, which is one is a sort of ideological shift, which often we know that populations tend to swing rightwards during a recession. When there's less money around, you suddenly become anxious about how it's spent. You become anxious about how much you're contributing to state. You become opinions tend to harden on welfare, immigration, all issues that favour the rights. There's that anxiety that comes with a recession traditionally. But also I think you've got a demographic shift underlying that. And there was some fascinating research a few weeks ago showing that um, Tory support among the under 24s has doubled. And you suddenly have this generation coming up who are much tougher minded perhaps than previous generations about things like welfare, don't have had it fairly tough themselves, have borne the brunt of austerity, probably don't, you know, may not have a job, may worry about not having a job and don't see why other people should have it easy. And who are also products of a much more individualistic mindset. They don't like collective, collaborative institutions in the same way as as perhaps older generations are used to the idea that you solve problems collectively. They're much more kind of atomised somehow. And the left hasn't got really much of an idea on how to deal with people call them generation self or generation me. It's no accident, I don't think, that we're now all starting to question whether the NHS can continue in its current form. That idea of pooling risk through one big national institution somehow, you know, is losing its appeal. Did you buy the basic analysis, and that somehow voters are turning away from a belief in the state and they're more willing to look to themselves to get them through life out of poverty? I think voters are fed up with politicians. And I think what's happened is Cameron, or the right, um, if we could take a broader view of it, have managed to slightly reinvent themselves. They've sort of not so, they're not quite, well, they're now heading back to UKIP, but I mean, Cameron moved them to the center, definitely. And I think the left have kind of failed to do that. I mean, what do they really think about welfare? Would they control their spending? are, you know, what kind of agenda do they have? Those are the kind of, what is their policy on schools? Stuff like that. You kind of, they really are all over the place. Phil, something I, I wrote in my Times column was, I think the left need to realise that austerity is not something that is going to be over in two or three years and actually things can return to normal quite quickly. Some of the problems, Gabby mentioned demography. I think you can look at global competitiveness, which might depress Britain's long-term growth rate. The idea that we can soon go back to big spending, big taxing, big government, politics may well be over for quite a long time and the left have the left faced up to that if you accept my premise i think you're right i do accept your premise and i don't think they're faced up to it and i don't think they can within the confines of their current thinking because social democracy the european variant of social democracy has been 
an idea of spending money through state programs to make the world slightly better. That's what it is. So vintage social democracy cannot survive an encounter with that world if it survives for a decade or more. So there's an awful lot of existential thinking to go on on the left. But in one sense, the crisis of the left, as, as such as it is, is not at all surprising. People are telling European governments that there's no money left because there's no money left. It is, they're doing nothing other than, than saying what's in front of them. And European left parties need to need to work that out. I don't really believe in these grand sweeps across countries. Um, we have a left of centre American president. The French government is a rather beleaguered left of centre government. And if you look historically, there's really no correlation between different countries. I think you should have to look at them one by one. Uh, and here in Britain, I think the Ed Miliband left is the last hurrah of that kind of social democracy. And what really worries me about an Ed Miliband government is precisely that you're right about the next few years and that the question that it is asked is one about how to manage the state more efficiently at a time when there's no resources. And I don't think the thinking on that question is very advanced at all. Because, Gabby, you, earlier on you were talking about perhaps the public wouldn't understand this clash with the unions because they, it wasn't all about mm. candidates and things. But for me, it isn't really about candidates. It's about the fact that the union movement has largely become a public sector phenomenon now. And this is a movement that is holding Labour back from the kind of sensible, responsible fiscal position that they need because of this age of austerity. You see, I don't know. I'm not sure that it's it's merely the question of union affiliation that holds Labour back, if you think that is the correct solution, that holds Labour back from reaching it. I mean, I think Labour's also, even if you know it weren't for the fact that Unite gives it lots of money, you know, it's many Unite members, many public sector workers, many teachers, doctors, nurses, road sweepers, whatever, yeah. would tend to be Labour voters yeah. and would tend to object to losing their jobs and would tend to feel it's that they don't want their pay froze in front of that. So it's whether a deeper or not, problem than the union you know, movement. This is whether the or not vote. the unions, yeah. whether or not the, yeah. the unions wanted it or didn't want it. You know, thousands and thousands and thousands of people would feel that, and Labour would feel a need to respond to them. So I don't think it's necessarily that. I mean, I think there is, however, a broader problem. There's a book out this week um, by the Labour thinker Anthony Painter called "Left Without a Future," which I've just started reading, and it's fascinating in its kind of analysis of of how Labour's failed to respond to the credit crunch, really, to the crash. Everyone assumed initially that the crash would mean that we were all going to swing left. Everyone hated bankers mm. and we wanted capitalism brought to heel. And so and the immediate kind of neuralgic reaction was kind of quite left wing. But then, but then, but that's it. Everyone hates bankers now. It's not an ideological position to hate bankers anymore. It's like not liking the weather. You know, there's nothing political about it. It was a red herring to make us to think that that meant we were all going there. That is in that book and is very common amongst Labour people at the moment is the idea that there's there's this monster called neoliberalism that we Mm. can blame everything on. And politics just doesn't really work like that. I mean, I, I managed to get to work on the deregulated bus and get by a coffee without neoliberalism bothering me at all at any point in my day. It, it just isn't really... I, I, I mean, I definitely feel that what um, the left have to do is have a com- start having a conversation. They're, they're not having a conversation. Occasionally, they sort of jump out of a window and shout at us. But we have no idea really how they feel, how what their ideas are. I mean, we, we, don't, we just sort of have this really jerky kind of all of a sudden, you know, like Ed is like dealing with the unions. But we need doing. to have a. We need. To. What they're doing Anna, is they're waiting for growth to come back, then they can go back to the status quo ante. Because accepting this overall spending um, envelope, not you know promising to spend or borrow more, doesn't mean that Labour can't have a different 
position going into the next election. You know, scrapping HS2, for example, would hugely upset Andrew Adonis, but we could release 40 or 50 billion pounds, which Labour could spend on housing or roads and have a very different message from the Tories that are now well dug into that project. Scrapping welfare for people earning more than 100,000 pounds, that could give them 5 billion more a year to spend. Tax yeah, to there's, there's, wealth, there's, Labour can still be very different, but accept austerity. I guess, I mean, the, the operative word there is could, mm. could be. Yes, they could be, but they, they kind of like won't. I mean, they won't start communicating. And they're probably saving it up to, because they don't want to tell us that the Tories can attack them So for, for a year before the election or something. I just think that's... that's yeah, we can't possibly tell you now. We've got the answers to everything. I think we there's a real value in kind of getting out there, letting people know what you think, you know, becoming someone who people can relate to. That's part of the problem now. I can that's see the basic themes that the Tories will go into the election with now, and I can't really see the basic themes that Labour goes yeah. in with. Well, that's a depressing thought for Labour listeners to this podcast, <laughs> Sorry, and I'm, <laughs> but I'm sure it will be a topic that we can come back to, and I'm sure there'll be plenty of Tory woes that we'll be discussing in future podcasts as well. But that's all the time we have today, and um, thanks to Gabby, Anne, and Phil, and also to my producer, Alex Jakes, for putting this all together. Uh, do subscribe via iTunes to this Did You Read podcast, and most of all, thanks to you for listening. Subtle results, still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia Gravis or Lambert-Eden syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com.